Red Salute, welcome to the Manifestering Podcast. If you want to support this project, which allows me more time to produce and release content, you can do so on my website, manifestoringpodcast.com. There's a link to my Patreon, as well as a donation button that allows you to just donate through the site itself. You can also do so on my anchor.fm page, just search for Manifestoring Podcast. Thanks so much for helping me keep revolutionary media alive. On this episode, I interview Jamie Fouad Paul and Matteo Andante about their latest book on necrocapitalism, a plague journal. We talk about the failures of electoralism, the bourgeois nature of liberal feminism, maintaining revolutionary optimism, and plenty more. You can pick up a copy of On Necrocapitalism, published by Chris Plebedeb at leftwingbooks.net, which I'll link to in the show notes. So without further ado, here's my interview with JMP and Matteo. On Necrocapitalism started as an online serial written by a then-anonymous collective known as M.I. Asthma. Since the release of the book, of course, we know the authors involved. If you can both discuss how the project and group came together, and what challenges you faced working on the project as a group of six people, with other commitments already in place, especially during the middle of a global pandemic. Also, was the idea from the start to eventually turn the online entries into a book, or is that something that came about organically over time? Yeah, I was going to say, because it started um, with like a discussion between myself and one of the other contributors, uh, Devin. And this we were, it was mainly just a joke originally about like what if we like did like a chain novel you know the idea where people would pass around a novel from person to person and, and they're usually quite shitty <laughs> but we were like what if we did it with philosophy and theory um and just found some people to do this and just hand it off it was pretty a in 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 cohate idea at the beginning but the, the two of us put together a draft of a prologue and then um and put a blog together and then we just started we recruited authors <laughs> said would you like to work on this and make it your own um and Mateo who's with me here is one of one of the authors and we ended up with six dedicated authors and and then it it just kind of took off and uh, Devin and I at the beginning we did we did kind of think that sure we should turn it into a novel at the end but we didn't really start seriously figuring out how to do that until until we wrapped it up yeah, um, I, I just to add to that, you know, when I was uh, when 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 I was asked to join the project, um, I I mean, we were really in the middle of a pandemic, mm. and uh, and there was so much going on on Twitter, and and things were moving so fast with mask mandates, no mask mandate, uh, scarcity, uh, people losing their jobs. Uh, frontline workers and in, in, in every industry uh, getting slammed with extra work and no relief. Um, so there was, it was very, like a very, uh, kind of a, a lot, a lot was happening. There's a very vibrant environment. And we, we, um, when, when, uh, when Josh came to me, I thought, you know, I really don't want to miss this opportunity to really try to stay on top of all of these things because uh, things were changing rather quickly. And, uh, but at the time I did not know or foresee that it, that it could, that, that it could turn into a book project and a book project of, of such length and depth, you know? And uh, yeah, 
but uh, so that's uh, that's kind of where I was coming from as one of the one of the early uh, early recruits to the project. Yeah, I mean, to, to build on that, it's, it's you know, Mateo says it was just kind of like in the thick of it. And kind of the idea of like, there, there's a lot in the collective memory of, of shit that was going down at that time that um, we felt would be forgotten. And, and, and we all, there was also like really bad analyses coming out like really fast, <laughs> like, like really <laughs> shitty post-structuralist Agamben style analysis. Yeah. And so it was part of the idea was like, what if we just do something that is very in the moment and immediate, but tries to theorize what's going on um, and just hang, handing it off to, to different people. I mean, a, an early on worry was that it would collapse quite quickly because people wouldn't gel and it wouldn't continue. But amazingly, it kept going. I mean, at one point we were we were doing like a, an entry a week right at the height of it. And then and then I think is, you know, you talk about challenges. I think people's people's energy kind of at the um, at the end of at the end of 2020, um, people's people's energy was started to like really really you know be weighted down by the pandemic and, and other things that were happening in their lives. Moving into the book, the topic of how children have been weaponized against the working class was the focus of a few entries from late 2020. If you can discuss how children have been weaponized against leftists who have children, both historically and during the pandemic, and also touch on the topic of the pressure to force children to return to school without proper safety precautions in place. Um, and we both like. Yeah, Mateo, go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. We're both wait. Yeah. Um, and in reality, what was happening is neoliberal policy that uh, would just, you know, wreck the lives of children and their families. And I tried to connect some of that to the history of capitalist settler colonialism and how disregard for children's lives and the use of the vulnerability of children against nations has, uh, has played out. So I spoke a lot about Indian, in, in, in Indian assimilation schools, you know, and I spoke a lot about the separation of children from from. And uh, in the uh, uh, during the, the period of chattel slavery, and I brought that up uh, in connection with having children in cages under the Trump administration, now continued continued under Biden, and so a lot of uh, an excuse for mass deportation for family separation that was used or that it is currently being used is health concerns and stopping the spread of COVID. But what really is happening is that they're invoking these laws to deprive children and their families, at least in the United States, depriving children and their families of, of their, their, their right to due process, splitting them at the border, and still leaving them locked up in unhealthy festering grounds for COVID. So I, I tried to speak about that entire arc connected to settler colonialism and imperialism. And I know other authors spoke about attacks against, uh, against the family and antinatalism. And maybe Josh can speak to some of that. Yeah, I, I mean, just to maybe expand on some of the things that, um, well, I know the antinatalist question is 
you want to discuss it a little bit later on too, but, but what Mateo was saying with this kind of think of the children stuff that we heard a lot, right? I mean, it, it has a history of this, of being a, a conservative canard that, you know, it's, it's intended to drum up moral panic, right? But I mean, the people is always disingenuous because it, I always feel like reactionaries actually hate children, um, <laughs> you know, because for them, it's like the only thing that counts as children that they have any kind of moral care about is either like children that are being fed um, culture they don't like, uh, or, or, or fetuses, which count as children for them, not actual children, um, not, not the people who, you know, are dying on the streets from starvation or, you know, um, bombed by drones or the children in cages that Medea points out. Like, they, you know, these assholes that complain about, think of the children, they don't bat an eye. Um, you know, think of the children and make them go back to school also and, and you know, without masks. <laughs> kind of like these is, this is the, the people, right? And I think also one of the things that, you know, Mateo brought up about the residential school systems, I think it was, that was an important thread that we ended up closing out the book on um, in the conclusion uh, that, was, that was written for the published version. Because right around the time we were editing it and finishing it in Canada, that was when um, all of these supposed revelations, and I say supposed because people knew they already existed, but they actually now had excavated former residential school systems in Canada and discovered, you know, you know, mass graves of children, um, uh, that everyone who had been through the residential school systems that were survivors knew that they existed, but, and, and there was an inquiry in Canada where they actually said these likely exist and we need to spend money to do it, but the government wouldn't do it. So it wasn't really a revelation for people to know, but it, it was a public revelation to a certain level where people start, started, there was a whole, there was a whole kind of, um, you know, a feeling around it that happened in, in the public with, you know, big, there's, there's even a big day this year of, of, of every child matters about these, you know, dead, dead kids. But, but, but the reality is, is that as soon as that happened, a lot of the same people that would be like, oh, think of the children and talk about that. They, they started claiming it wasn't a genocide or, you know, writing all these opinion pieces about how it was just an accident created by well-meaning people and all of, all of that kind of hypocrisy. And I think that hypocrisy appeared a lot in the way that conservatives and liberals talked about life during during the pandemic. And I mean, my thoughts are probably scattered here. I just was trying to expand on what Matteo was saying. But I think also it was important for the reason why the topic about children came up a lot, aside from it being that conservative canard, is because at least, you know, um, well, three three of the contributors, um, myself and, you know, Matteo and, and one other of the contributors have children, right? Um, and during the pandemic, we're, we're, we're dealing a lot with care, care of the children and in, in a time that was like, you know, basically not doing much for kids. Building off the previous question, the chapter concerning, quote, left, unquote, nihilism and antinatalism and its relation to the capitalist imaginary really stood out to me. If you can talk about these concepts, where they originate from and why they're ideological dead ends. Well, I, I think maybe if Matteo is fine with this. Because, you know, we're talking about this book, it might be worth actually just reading, reading a passage about, um, about left nihilism, you know, before we talk Absolutely. about antinatalism. Um, Matteo, are you fine with that? Fine yeah, that's fine. Yeah, and then we can like, it'll kind of be like, also a, you know, shameless uh, uh, self-promotion. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of people know what's in there instead of us talking about it. So, I mean, this is from this chapter called Nihilist Reconciliation. Um, starts at the bottom of 261 for anyone who's interested in finding it, if they get a copy of the book. And right, it's written here, nihilism is an attitude that is harder and harder for anti-capitalists in the imperialist metropoles to avoid. 
we have witnessed multiple failures and have been socialized to forget or dismiss any success. <clears throat> we lived through the trauma of the collapse of the great revolutionary projects. We were fed the false hopes of movementism and were incapable of recognizing that these fragmented projects were doomed from the outside. We witnessed a world crawling towards the edge of destruction, maniacally pursuing mechanics of species suicide. We understand that everything about capitalism is a lie. We know that it cannot save itself from itself because of its logic, but our imagination is such that the possibility of rupturing from this necrotic sequence is unthinkable. Within the reality demarcated and described by the capitalist imaginary, another world is impossible, and it is very difficult to pursue the revolutionary slogan famously proclaimed in May 1968 that the revolutionary imaginary is about demanding the impossible. Faced with the vast graveyard that the world has become, nihilism, when judged within the constraints imposed by capitalism's vision of reality, certainly feels like a viable option. According to the capitalist imaginary, resistance is impossible, or, as the Orwellian discourse coupled with Cold War ideology has promoted, will result in a more horrific state of affairs. Hopelessness becomes normative amongst would-be militants who are separated from the world-building projects of revolutionary communist parties. Even militants who join such partisan projects might drop out and give up when events do not proceed as quickly and as smoothly as they would like. While there is indeed a petty bourgeois variant of this hopeless nihilism, nothing matters, so I might as well enjoy what little time I have while complaining that capitalism has pushed the world into a death drive, it is common amongst the exploited and oppressed masses as well. The working class is taught that there is no future but drudgery and meaningless labor, that workers' failure to rise above their circumstances is their fault alone, because they are not creative enough, because they lack the incentive, because they are not thinking enough positive thoughts. But it is the pseudo-progressive strain of left nihilism, and I put left in scare quotes here, right, that attempts to push this sentiment enforced by capitalist ideology as a viable anti-capitalist option. Lee Edelman's No Future is a perfect example of the petty bourgeois wallowing in capitalism's death drive presented as radical. So-called queer nihilism, along with nihilist communism and anarchist nihilism, emerges from Edelman's morbid acceptance of the capitalist imaginary. Nihilism is the common sense of necrocapitalism, even when it presents itself as critique. So, I mean, that's the part, I guess that's the passage that kind of talks a bit about this, this kind of left, left nihilism that, 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 that we talk about. Yeah, Matteo, is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I want to. One thing I wanted to say about that is that that passage really hits it on the. It, it, it really it really captures the 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 the. Um, I would say the essence of this type of nihilism, and I see, in my I see a lot of that passed around in. Mm. Uh, in the in the left left circles, and I think it was about time that somebody put it together and put it in the works and set it it out there, because a lot of us we are upset, we are disillusioned, we are disheartened, we have we look for revolutionary socialism and we find revision, we look for uh, hope and they give us billionaires going to the moon, and um, so it's pretty easy to say yeah or adopt one of these attitudes like um, a, a type of hopeless hopeless attitude and the thing is that as soon as we become connected to the revolutionary struggle to the struggle of the masses who are not 
that they're building something. Then we can arm ourselves against this type of uh, nihilism and and combat it both in practice, combat it in theory, and in uh, and in our philosophy. So um, in academic philosophy, in particular, they take they take nihilism as a punchline sometimes. And a lot of the folks who are doing this fancy themselves to be on the left wing. And, uh, and it's like a joke. It's like a punchline. Okay, everybody knows things are bad. Okay, we all know that. But we're building, and we're building to win. And if you're not there, then you're good. You, you know, you're, it's like a petty bourgeois thing, and, uh, and it's not helping anyone. Those are some of my thoughts on that. Mainstream views in academic philosophy. Uh, or, or, or maybe not mainstream, maybe not like published articles or things like that, but the, 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 the mood of the people in academic philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. It, I think it's like, and also to, to go, to go further, cause you know, the second thing that you, that you asked about, um, in this, in this category of questions was, was antinatalism. And, and I think it's like antinatalism is a, a philosophy that it's still, it's still kind of a it's like a it's like an edgelord philosophy in even in bourgeois <laughs> philosophy like even even main, mainly bourgeois philosophers a lot of them don't take it seriously like they teach this stuff as like look at look at how crazy like philosophers can be but i mean it does have a, a significant following and a certain kind of like uh, popular kind of like cult philosophy following these kind of petty b edgelord philosophy type people right and and i you know it's described in the in the text right this is these are people like David Benatar and Peter Zappi and Julio Cabrera. And, and they're, you know, they, their whole, their whole point is that, you know, the world, the world would be better if people just stopped, um, you know, stopped making babies and that we just yeah. all died off. Right. Because it, it's some, it's like this crude utilitarian calculus that like, since humans are feel pain, like an ascension of it or any sentient life, then like the, the, the universe would be better without sentient life. Cause there'd be no pain in it. Cause pain is bad. It's, like a, it's wild. Right. Um, yeah. but, but what's, yeah. what's really, what's really, really tremendously weird is that there are some people that like claim that they, that they, they are left wing and, and they adopt this philosophy very seriously that, you know, I run into and, and, um, I mean, some of the main, the main spokespeople that, you know, that are crafted antinatalism are definitely reactionaries. Like David Benatar is not a, is not a leftist in any, any sense of the word. He also like writes about, he writes MRA shit too, like, like men's rights activist shit. Wow. So, <laughs> that that's yeah. like kind of where, where he's at. But, um, but these other people that, you know, claim that there are these, these, le- I, mean, I got in this argument one time with, with someone online, on it's always online, right? It's kind of these people that, uh, and I made some joke about David Penatar being like an example of teaching you like where, where, where philosophy kind of just eats itself because it's, <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> but this person got mad and was like, no, there's, it's, it's, it's very, it's a very left-wing position to be antinatalist because it's like, you know, because, because look at all the things the humans have done to each other and wouldn't the world be better off without them. And I'm like, um, I, I was trying to get this person to realize that th- that kind of view really flies in the face of the struggles of, of people who have experienced the most pain and oppression. Like if you look at like, some of the really cutting edge work of uh, kind of minoritarian philosophy coming out of kind of like a black radical tradition or indigenous writers. I mean, these are people whose populations have experienced in the modern, in the modern world, like the most pain and oppression, right. From like the plantation system and like uh, colonial genocide. And they're not like, you know what, we should just, all humans should die, even us. Right. It's like, 
their understanding of pain and oppression from having historic experience, it is not this, not this weird response, right? And so uh, it, it's like, when we take that position seriously, if people that have historically experienced the most pain and oppression, and then their radical works, their solution isn't this, this nihilism. You know, they, may, they may adopt some nihilism now and then, but, what, and, but in different ways, it, most of their stuff is like, we have to find a way to get beyond this. I mean, that's, that's what I want to listen to rather than some edgy anti-natalist trying to say it's a left-wing position just to like, for us all to die out. You, know? you focus on the question of feminism, specifically liberal feminism and its failures in the chapter Down Girl Imperialism. I'm going to assume most people listening to this are at least semi-well-versed in the failures of liberal feminism, but if you can discuss how the pandemic and specifically the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg really put a spotlight on these failures. Yeah, well, I guess what what got to me, and I, and, and part of it was also, I I I suspect from Josh, from uh, one of the pieces that I cite uh, that Josh wrote, uh, is when when Ruth Ginsburg passed, she was almost immediately, without question, and without critique, uh, elevated to the status of a feminist hero. And, you know, we, it's always hard for someone on the revolutionary left to look at a successful and established woman in the, in, in the imperialist institution to look on them without wondering what is the basis of, of the praise that they're receiving. And when, uh, when Ruth Ginsburg passed, there was very little, there was very little by way of criticism or looking concretely at her history as a judge and as a social, as basically a social influencer, because she had a lot to say about uh, new African protests. She had a lot to say about resistance to police brutality. That was not, that doesn't sit well with a revolutionary internationalist uh, feminist perspective. And so we, 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 we took it upon ourselves to analyze some of those things and show how her decisions sometimes uh, in the courts were not as feminist as one might, uh, as, they, as they were painted out to be, because they ended up affecting many women and children and families who just failed to be bourgeois liberal, middle class imperialists. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we took that to task. And uh, in, uh, I know that in one of my entries, I went over uh, some of her decisions and her attitude, her negative attitude towards um, taking of the knee during football pr protests, you know, uh, against police brutality. She thought it was disrespectful and petty. Yeah, um, I think she even called it dumb at one point, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. which is just so dismissive so, and gross. Yeah. So, you know, somebody, you know, the, the, who are the police killing? Who are they, who are they killing? You know, they're, 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 they're killing uh, people with families. And we've seen that. And they, they irreverently murder men and women. We, so there's no, um, it was not, uh, 
you see, you see incongruencies with our perspective about feminism. And in particular, um, a lot of uh, bourgeois, bourgeois liberal feminism will focus on, a pow- on the, the notion of a powerful woman. So she was a powerful woman. Hillary Clinton, a powerful woman. Margaret Thatcher, a powerful woman. And we, we ask ourselves, okay, what is the content of that power? You know, one of the goals of our, um, or, or one of the, one of the goals we'll to do this project is to always interrogate sources mm-hmm. of power, class, nation, gender, race, and so we start thinking about Ruth, Ruth Ginsburg's power. She was a powerful woman, but she was a powerful woman of the ruling class in the imperialist nation. And, and she wielded that power against oppressed women and oppressed men and oppressed families. And she did that consistently to great success and accolades uh, from, uh, in, 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 uh, under imperialism. And what happens with the bourgeois uh, liberal feminists is that they, um, they end up pretending that these things aren't reality. They focus on powerful women without interrogating where is that power coming from. It's class power. It's settler power. It's imperialist power. And uh, and that was kind of that 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 I think we took with uh, with this um, with our analysis of uh, of of of, of uh, Ruth uh, uh, of the response to Ruth Ginsburg's passing. And I connected it to. Um, uh, to a very popular book in academic philosophy written by uh, Kate Mann, very book, contemporary book. Uh, it's called Dan, what she calls The Logic of Misogyny. And the book is not a bad book by any, uh, you know, by any standard. It's a good book. Uh, however, it is a bourgeois liberal chauvinist book. And it is chauvinism that keeps it from being useful or universal to most of the world's oppressed women. And so she fails to analyze the power uh, of Hillary Clinton. She uses Hillary Clinton a lot as a model of, uh, of a woman who experiences misogyny and without ever interrogating the source of Hillary Clinton and how uh, how her power ha- can be used or or has been used to carry out uh, violence against countless and hundreds countless of women and uh, yeah so uh, I don't know uh, if Josh wants to chime in no I think yeah I mean there's a lot that Mateo said there that I, I think is great uh, obviously and um, I, I just think it's like just going back to that period with with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and all the weird shit that was written by her. There was just, it seemed kind of like corny and embarrassing. Like, you know, people had written like, like uh, all these RBG shirts, which for me, I could only think of like, when I saw it, I was, I'm thinking dead, dead prez, like revolutionary, but gangster. And I'm like, that, that, doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't fit with like this oh, RBG man. at all, you know, that's, that's not, her. Uh, but then, then all the, the weird tweet about Ruth Conda, you know, <laughs> yeah. Ruth Conda. but I mean, it was, it's, and you know, and Mateo connects it to that kind of the, 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 
Hillary Clinton stuff and Thatcher and I'm with her. And it's, it's weird because it's like, I mean, outside of um, just like those of us that are in kind of a revolutionary communist position that talk about proletarian feminism, and understand these class divisions. It's not even within like kind of accepted academic feminist philosophy. This, this is still strange. Like I, I, I thinking back to like, you know, bell hooks has that really, really classic essay on, um, Called, called feminism a movement to end sexist oppression where, where she begins off by saying that the position where people claim that feminism is about being equal to men is is the wrong position because it it, it opens the question of which men and usually people that raise it are white women that want to be equal to bourgeois men <laughs> right? yeah. this is this is this is the this is the, the position of like the, the the hillary clintons and all that kind of stuff as well so i mean even within the discourse of like famous feminists we have this this um the failures of liberal, liberal feminism have been charted and yet all of it is so because of because of it is such connected to such strong class politics and and a whole bunch of other politics that it, it just um it just always like appears <laughs> in this kind of way and, and really needs to be critiqued because because it, it is a it is a you know a feminism that is that is you know antagonistic towards you know the the aspirations of the oppressed and exploited and and I think maybe even like connecting it there, this wasn't really in, in our book, but stuff that just kicked off recently is I'm thinking about all the weird kind of like shitty um, turf feminism um, that recently just appeared around like Kathleen Stock, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, thing, it's just, yeah, this, this, this person writes the most like abhorrent transphobic stuff without even actually, you know, doing the study, like the, the research behind it. It's like she's invented herself as a popular intellectual in this because it, you know, it fits everyone's like chauvinisms that are on mainstream publications so she could publish it. As soon as she's protested against like all this liberalism is like, but it's this, this woman that's not being allowed to talk, you know, as opposed to like, oh, these protests were quite mild, but they're like <laughs> seeing it as censorship and all this kind of stuff when it's like, people that represent uh, an oppressed group are just really being angry about what this, what this woman's stuff is, is, is doing to them or or can affect them in their material existence. Moving away from liberal feminism specifically and looking at the failures of liberalism more broadly, the book spends several chapters focusing on the election of Joe Biden, the idea of Trumpism and how liberals and Democrats use this to call for a return to quote normalcy unquote by capturing the so-called anti-fascist vote. If you can touch on these topics and the dead end nature of electoralism at large. Yeah, I think the, the book, the reason it did that is because the book was still being written while, <laughs> while the election <laughs> in the U S took off. So it, since it was always being immediate, it was kind of excavating that as it went. But I think I want to turn it over to, to Matteo here um, because that, that electoral, that, that electoral, that was like, I'm in Canada. So I was watching it from afar, whereas in the, the, the writers that were in the U.S. Um, were experiencing it very, very immediately. Yeah, um, the return to normal. Wow, that phrase is like, you know, it, it, it's one of those things that it, 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 it hides a multitude of sins, as they say. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we have the idea of returning to normal from the pandemic, which we've criticized throughout our entire world work and then returning to normal from the epoch of trumpism in the united states and uh i think a lot of the work that we spent a lot of the work that we did was uh dedicated to showing that this normal is 
not something oppressed people want to ever go back to. They don't want to go back to that. Um, whether it is the basic oppressive conditions of the working class after they've been massively laid off, a lot of that is manifesting itself now with uh, the reluctance of uh, capitalist enterprises to continue to pay a living wage or, or to, to, pay a, to, to, to pay a living wage and uh, coming up with schemes like child labor and uh, extended working hours in order, in order to, uh, you know, to, 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 to stay afloat, to keep the capitalist system going. So that reality, you know, th those things are like, there's like a thread from the origins of capitalism up until now. So going back to that normal, that's not a good thing. And in the United States, with the election, the discourse is dominated by the Democrats, Democrats and the Republicans. And uh, that discourse is a closed loop. It's a dead end and it is a dead end. And the reason for that, we've seen now in practice because Biden made promises and liberals made promises for Biden that there would not be children in cages, that there would be universal, uh, uh, what is it, um, abolition of uh, student debt. And none of those things ha has happened. In, in fact, mass deportations have continued and have been expanded. But what was happening is that they really were pushing the line uh, of this. In, basically, it's like an inter-imperialist rivalry. We have different wings of imperialism fighting for political power and uh, positioning one as, as, as the, 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 the benign alternative. And uh, we, know, we, we, we know now in practice, but we knew back then. And why did we know back then? We know back then because of the history of capitalism and because we understand that politics is expressive of certain modes of production, certain ways of doing society. So there was a lot of, a lot of demog uh, demagoguery and a lot of uh, false promises, which were actually nothing new to, these, are, these, are, these things were nothing new to the oppressed. And at the same time, you have to remember that we were experiencing massive urban rebellion in protest uh, of police brutality and the murder of George Floyd. So the efforts of the bourgeoisie to promote legalism, the efforts of the bourgeoisie to, pro to promote reformism, were they they ramped they ramped those up they ramped them up because in the common language of the oppressed we were talking about abolishing the police you know and we were envisioning a different way of doing it. whereas they didn't want any of that they wanted us to republican or democrat republican or democrat so we spent some time in our book highlighting the, um, the difference between legal strategies for change and revolutionary alternatives and uh, being careful to show the pitfalls of, uh, of legalism 
the limit of legalism. And all of the things that were promised and all of the things that were, the carrots that were dangled, all of those things have now, in such a short time since the election of Joe Biden, they've been shown to have been false and fake and business as usual. Yeah, we went back, but we went back to the same, it's like the same thing, business as usual. And uh, we definitely need a strategy to change that. And uh, it may not entirely come from the ballot box. Yeah, um, it's, it's a, yeah. It's, I want to echo everything, obviously, that Mateo says, but it's also, the thing here is that, you know, in Canada, we went, like, after after the book was written and was, was published and out, we went, we went through a similar kind of electoral call. Um, where is in you know our electoral system is is a bit different in in Canada where we have kind of, we don't have fixed fixed terms like it's not every four years it's like the um the party that's in power has like five years and they can call an election within two years even if they want to if they feel that it's strong so they our our prime minister our current prime minister he called an election just two years after he'd won because he felt it would give him time to get like another five years in a, in a position during pandemic where he was strong and 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 he used the kind of um the same kind of like call about, you know, normalcy and, and sanity. And, you know, he made this claim that, um, that the, uh, the conservative, the conservative party was, um, you know, was, was, was anti was, you know, was, was courting anti-vaxxers and all this kind of thing. Um, but, you know, and, and, you know, and, and, you know, made all these claims that, you know, and, 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 you know, cozying up to white nationalists and, 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 and the, you know, the, the irony is, is that he's, you know, as, as much as that was true, <laughs> like very true, uh, is this is the same liberal party that, um, that, you know, refuses, you know, re- refused to do anything about um, when, when it could have with the, with the truth and reconciliation commission about, you know, residential schools that, yeah. and that when all of the, um, again, when all of the, the, the mass graves were found, it, you know, it kind of, you know, they did this kind of crocodile tears thing where, you know, they weren't really going to do anything about it and, and are actually fighting survivors in court from, from a class action suit to get like compensation from it. So they're not, and of course, they're also the government that is like went forward with the pipeline and, you know, you know, smashed indigenous resistance before pandemic around it. Um, and, and so it's, it's like, you know, they can say this stuff on paper, uh, but you know, the normalcy they want is, is still the same normalcy of like everyday capitalism. It's like just a different, it's a different tenor of it, like a different tone, a different shade. And, um, but the thing is, is that, you know, it's, it, you know, as Matteo was saying in the book, we talk about kind of the, the dangers of, of, of the electoral strategy and like the limits of legalism. And it really is strange, you know, how many you know, leftists who should know better get sucked into the circus every time. Right. Because because of the panic of, of, of the reality of, like, say, you know, the way that certain of the, the conservative parties, the Republicans in the states, the, the conservative party of Canada here, how they, they are now. They've, they've moved so right that they you know, a lot of their core are are white nationalists. <laughs> they can't be denied. But they, then it's like these other it's the panic is to vote in people that are, are fine cozying up to those forces. But, you know, putting a kind of a, a, a saner face or, you know, a different kind of. Uh, clothing upon it each time and 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 the world is still creeping closer to environmental collapse that you know every party is is fine to participate in even if they try to claim they're about you know about uh, about being nicer to humans or whatever i mean and, and also in canada we got this other you know we have the other party this you know that we have a, a third major party but it's major but never really never really wins <laughs> although it's won some um 
provincial power at certain points, and that's the New Democratic Party, which is our, our social democratic party, but they've also drifted m more to the right as well. And, and you know, they'll, they'll say certain things, but when it comes down to their actual practice in the provinces they've been in charge of, it's, it's been the same, it's the same shit of capitalism continuing. Um, and, and so this is, you know, kind of what we're faced with it. And so the, the election, when it came, it was, it was bizarre, right? Because no one wanted it, but everyone felt they had to like vote all the people that normally vote, right? Because they like, they didn't want the conservatives to be in there to like, you know, maybe open up everything again when the pandemic was still raging. And so it, it was like, but it was, you know, a, a very small population of people participated. And, and also it was interesting that, you know, they, they staffed because they're trying to do this in this quick time. It's like they staffed these electoral places with, with people that, you know, need part-time jobs. And these are usually the people that, and they're not even going to necessarily have time to vote because they're working, um, you know, 14 hours a day, these places. Like I have a friend that, mm -hmm. you know, worked, worked the election and worked like a full 14 hours and then di didn't have time to vote. Not that she wanted to vote anyhow, but I'm just saying <laughs> if, if people did feel like that was, you know, their voice, they're the ones that are also being just mechanically disenfranchised from, from, from their vote, just so this, everyone else can have this election. Cause you know, the people that are overwhelmingly working those ballot boxes to just get a wage are, you know, are people that are like in a lower economic bracket, they, they need the money. Um, and so it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's just this, this circus. And then of course the, the return to normalcy is always the funny thing because like what, what is normalcy? And I think Matteo, you know, pointed out what, what is, what is the long, and the, as the book points out too, what's, what's the long standing normalcy of capitalism, right? It's, it's that it will murder, torture, incarcerate and devour anything and everyone. And that's, that's something we, you know, that uh, the electoral trap kind of finds a way to channel off energy and especially the energy that, you know, Matteo mentioned of, of the rebellions, right. Um, being, being channeled into this uh, mm -hmm. instead of into like a, an organized disciplined, uh, revolutionary project. The project came to a close as vaccines were beginning to roll out around the middle of the year, and the so-called end of the pandemic was being discussed. I don't think anyone knew what the future of the pandemic was really going to look like at the time, but one thing that has been wholly unsurprising is the racist, Western chauvinist nature of vaccine equity and distribution. We've seen the horrific nature of for-profit health care laid bare here. If you can discuss this and how it ties back into the white supremacist nature of capitalism itself. Yeah, um, yeah. That, so this is a this is a very uh, it's a very sad thing, you know. I remember us uh, in the book we talk about one of the world's greatest philanthropists, Bill Gates, uh, militating against lifting patent restrictions in order, you know, to hold on to the reins of profitability. And every once in a while, you'll see on Twitter, maybe every other day, a map of vaccine, of global vaccine distribution. And um, it is the macrocosm of what's happening within the imperialists. So the imperialist powers, the ex-colonial nations uh, are the ones, are the ones uh, who have achieved uh, greater vaccination uh, rates amongst their population, whereas the rest of the world is condemned to eat dirt. And sure, they make a, they make much ado of uh, shipment of uh, of vaccines. But so, for example, in my country, Mexico, 
they made a much ado, the United States made much ado about shipping millions of vaccines into the country. But what, what, that, what people fail to realize is that Mexico is a country that is like semi-feudal and weighed under the yoke of bureaucrat capitalism. So these vaccines are not going to get to the farm workers. You know, they're not, they're not going to get to uh, the people in industry. They're not going to get to the broad masses. They're going to get to the people who can be bought off, the people who have a cushy spot in society. And... Um, so these things are for, sh- uh, for the most part, these things are for show, and capitalism is very much like that. Healthcare is for show, and in, in, in at least at least in the United States, it is for show. You know, you always see commercials and advertisements about doctors or like in these sterile environments caring for their patients, and you know that's just not how it is. We we know how it is, and uh, the same thing is happening on a global scale with vaccine scarcity. And uh, so w- w- what's going on? Well, like, sure. You know, as soon as you start digging, it's always profit and interests. So if people can't, if, if major imperialist corporations can't control the production and sale, then uh, they're not going to let go of those patents. And people will continue to struggle, especially in countries that are uh, struggling under the yoke of imperialism. You know, because we don't have our, we don't have everything set in place to distribute medicines. They get stolen. They get lost. They get sold. They get exported. They get shipped off somewhere else for profit. And in uh, in the United States, similar things happen in terms of class and national stratification. What happened in the early rollout of the vaccines was that in the, in the, in the urban centers, or um, at least here in Los Angeles, for example, in the urban center, in the, in, the, in, the, in the main metro corridor, all of the petty bourgeois people from West Hollywood, Beverly Hills, West, L- West LA, they were flooding the, the, the pharmacies and the vaccine, uh, the, the, the vaccine centers. And, you know, they become frustrated because they got to wait in line. So what they end up doing is going into the, going into the barrios, going into the ghetto, where there's not a lot of, uh, where there was not a lot of uh, widespread education about the vaccine and there was no long lines. So they ended up lining up and taking other people's vaccines. You know, uh, in Los Angeles, a lot of that is under control, except amongst the most vulnerable, which is uh, the, the, the unhoused population. But mm. capitalism will breed this type of thing, this, self, this uh, self-interest. And on a global scale, it's always the, pro- it's the profit motive. And that's why we can't have nice things. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's a good slogan the capitalism is why we can't have nice things at the end of the day <laughs> but um yeah i want to you know say they're on here just before you know the, the stuff about the mateo said about uh you know people going into like barrios and that like, like 
like wealthier people to get the vaccines. You know, in Canada, it's it's a bit it's a bit different. Like the whole healthcare system is a bit different because we have a we have like um, you know like a national healthcare system that um, you know, it likes to call itself socialized medicine, but but it's not because it's still like private interest, but it's like a single buyer system. But because of the pressures of capitalism, it gets things get delisted every year, right? Because <laughs> that's what happens. Um, and these, but, but, you know, because of that social democracy that, that, that Canada is able to have because of its imperialism, it, you know, <laughs> it does social democracy with imperialism to a certain extent, like not full social democracy, but it has these little social democratic things like single buyer medicine, which of course I'm glad I have access to. Otherwise, I, I can't imagine the, 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 the cost of medicine otherwise. But, um, but even with that, we still had, um, and even with an understanding that the government, the government had an understanding from, from the beginning because they're following, they're listening to health professionals, but, um, you know, and health professionals pointed out, you need to vaccinate, vaccinate the vulnerable populations first, because that's where it like spreads, even though they did that, it still, you know, still had this unevenness in class of people going in. Like there was one point where like, um, they, they realized that the, the government of, uh, of, of the municipal government, my city, Toronto realized that, that, um, it's one area, like, uh, one of one of the we have two Chinatowns in Toronto, but one of the Chinatowns um, had a you know had people that had a lower level of vaccination rate just because they didn't have the time. They weren't like anti-vaxxers, but they were working. It was a, it was a strong working class population, and you know they were working a lot during it, and they didn't have time to go stand in line and get vaccines. But they were the ones since they were always working. It was the health realized that it's an issue that we need to get them vaccinated because that's where it spreads, and so they made that proper understanding. We're going to set up clinics, and then tons of these assholes from rich neighborhoods. Um, converged on the area because they saw that there was like this clinic open and was doing back had this massive amount of vaccination um, and, and they, these were people that weren't high risk like they were people that worked out of their home but they had the ability to get it quicker so they would they drove down and there was even like you know footage of them being told please don't come here because we're trying to vaccinate this population and entire like you know bullshit responses from them and returning and demanding they get it and trying to push push in line and of course they were able to do it with the kind of the class power they had and there's tons of examples of that that happened um that showed that even when the, even when even when like a government tries to follow because you know it doesn't it, it only wants to follow these health things because it wants to stop the spread because i mean the liberal government is not the crazy conservative government that thinks that like there's no such thing as you know it's not a big problem they at least realize that it's a problem but they still are connected to these kind of capitalist pressures. Um, and, and, and even though they may say we may, it might be good to like give it to this vulnerable population, it's still done in a way that it's a first come first serve with whatever asshole that has the ability to get there and take up the vaccines. Um, but, you know, the larger, the larger issue that, you know, Matteo also talked about is a vaccine is, is, is what, you know, is what was already being called vaccine apartheid and has been called vaccine apartheid even before COVID. I mean, we, we kind of we started the project with with an understanding, with an with an understanding that um, that even when vaccines appeared or how COVID, it would always be it would always hit like the the uh, global peripheries the hardest because of the way that we know past medicines have have been controlled and and, and not and not applied to you know to whether through patents or through like the, the, the prevention of patents, the, the, sorry, the, the preventative power of patents that like stops uh, like, you know, like uh, you know, knockoffs being made. Um, and also just the ability to manufacture in, in the third world due to like the history of imperialism. And so we, we, we knew that was happening. And um, at the end of the project, we, we recognized that and we, we decided to end the project 
since vaccines were already rolling out with noting that this, this vaccine apartheid, which is something we had predicted, and we can make that very, it was very easy to predict. It was inference of the best explanation from a historical materialist perspective that this is what would happen because it happened with every single fucking vaccine. Right? <laughs> There's still mm-hmm. like massive problems with like of, of, uh, of diseases that have been eliminated through vaccines here in the West that they're still rampant in, in, in the global peripheries because these, these, these terrible, like vicious pharmaceutical companies um, refuse to, uh, you know, allow their, pat- their patents to be violated um, and, and want to sell these at like massive, you know, massive cost these places or, or like they don't, you know, will not even help with any kind of manufacturing when it's actually better for everyone's public health. Um, so, you know, so this has always been the case with health in general due to imperialism. I mean, health, like global health is like an issue that is exacerbated by capitalism, by its imperialist manifestation. Um, and, and of course, so it's like, you know, the, the problem then with big pharma, right? That it isn't that it's foisting evil vaccines upon people, but that's the vaccine, you know, it's the anti-vaxxers claim, but that it creates vaccines that work quite well, but just won't be accessible, right? Um, and, and, and so in many ways, big pharma, you know, it's, it's cooperating with anti-vaxxers in prolonging the crisis. Moving away from the book briefly, I just wanted to get your thoughts on the quote-unquote end of the Afghan war and the fallout we've seen since the withdrawal. Well, I, I just want to, I want to throw in before Matteo talks, it's been, a, it's been a perspective for 20 years here. Like Canada didn't yeah. join the U.S. In, in Iraq, but we were, we were part of the coalition of the Willing in Afghanistan, right. Yep. right? It was a massive deal. Yeah, um, I'm always very skeptical of imperialists ending war. Like Lenin says that imperialism means war. And uh, I understand that there's a troop withdrawal and that it was used as um, a political, it was kind of like a political stalking horse between the Republicans and the Democrats. And there was a lot of focus on the mechanics of the withdrawal. There was a lot of focus on whether or not troops and allies, American troops and allies, were uh, in a good position when the majority of the armed uh, forces withdrew. And uh, there was criticism about how that was carried out. Now, obviously, from our point of view, or at least from the point of view of like revolutionary internationalism, we think that Afghanistan has been tyrannized by American imperialism and that the focus instead has to be on how uh, the destabilizing effect of removing uh, well, all the imperialist countries. They don't just engage in hot wars. They engage in low-intensity war, low-intensity conflict. They engage in cold wars. They they engage in espionage and intrigue in order to control uh, economic spheres of influence. And the United States has, in a sense, been keeping some of the the most reactionary forces in Afghanistan. It has kept them kind of uh, in their back pocket, you know, and now it has let some of them loose. I mean, for a long time, the United States was the biggest reactionary force in Afghanistan, you know. So I think the question of the end to the war 
it's more like a question of the withdrawal or the change in the nature of the imperialist relationship that the United States has to Afghanistan and to, to the people of Afghanistan and to the entire, uh, to that entire region. And uh, of course, here in the United States, there was fundraisers and right-wing critiques of our allies being abandoned to the Taliban and to, uh, to other reactionary elements. But it's, you know, and it's very easy to kind of lose focus of like the machinations of, 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 of imperialism. And uh, the United States has just, just, just destroyed Afghanistan and has made it into, uh, you know, into what, what it is, what it is today with, 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 with uh, warlords, and uh, what is it? Uh, re re regional regional uh, infighting it has stimulated that. Whereas, without imperialist intervention, revolutionary forces, proletarian forces, internationalist forces might have uh, might have a chance to organize and to build a better world for them, for themselves and for their people. So the focus on our allies and all America's allies and uh, all of that and, and, and making it seem like the warlords are the big boogeyman. Well, yes, we, are, we understand the con those contradictions, you know, but the United States and it's uh, in, in the imperialist countries and the, the, the coalitions, uh, they are the ones that are responsible for this. And the path forward you know, I I, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm speaking out of turn because, but I, but I know this, that um, Afghanistan will not be free with imperialist meddling. And whether it does that by direct occupation or by whether it does that by puppet, by a puppet government, by whether it does that by funding militias, Afghanistan will not be free. Those are some of my thoughts. Yeah, and I want to I want to add that it's good. I mean, Afghanistan definitely will not be free without imperialist meddling, and it's uh, you know it, it won't be free either without like um, uh, progressive forces getting rid of uh, you know a reactionary government as well. But, yeah. But I mean the, the the whole the whole hypocrisy of this is those of us that have been watching the you know the entire war on terror is that the, the U.S. funded a puppet government that was just as reactionary as the Taliban with the same anti-woman <laughs> kind of, you know, politics, the same bullshit and rife with corruption. Um, and the only reason that it was seen as more progressive is, is not because of its actual politics on the ground, which were reactionary, but because it collaborated with the U.S. And that made any progressive force, like, made, the, made it harder for them to fight on the ground, which, you know, the main you know, progressive forces like the Communist Maoist Party of Afghanistan, like the seeing the main enemy is imperialism because that was like the, that was the primary mover of, of of all the forces when it was in power right um and it becomes really harder to defeat a reactionary government when you have the backing of a machine like the u.s and every and also the coalition of like canada and all these and the britain and all these places that were in there backing backing this puppet government but I, you know it's it's, it's we, we never really got to talk about this in the project because um when we concluded it uh you know, we still thought that the, the, the so-called war on terror would remain alive in Afghanistan in the way that it was um, for the time being. I, I think, you know, 
we even mentioned that in the conclusion. And it's also because all through the pandemic, the war that, that war on terror continued unbated, right? It continued, it persisted. Um, so we weren't able to discuss the withdrawal. Uh, but you know, you know, Matteo points out that that, that you know that discourse that you know uh, the, the discourse of the troops withdrawing and abandoning people and all that. And you know, it's it is you know if we we had I think if we had been still writing the book then we we probably would have had some good chapters like discussing that as well because like for me for me when I was um, seeing that discourse because it appeared in Canada as well with the withdrawal of the Canadian troops right. And, and the same stuff about how, oh, we're abandoning these people after all these years, these years here. And it really felt like a, a reassertion of the same bullshit uh, that, you know, that was used to justify the war on terror. Right. That, right. You know, that, 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 because that would, those are the lies they sold at the beginning that, 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 you know, the war on occupation was about defending women, that imperialism was good for that reason. Right. And, and that, that, that was all proved wrong because of the way like it was all proved when they did not defend women. They did not do that. This, this kind of, this kind of like weird feminist washing of the war was already proven by tons of people that did that to be just complete garbage. And they, they reasserted all of that bullshit. They were using to sell the war that the entire anti-war movement said was crap back in 2001. And yet all these people were eating it up. Right. And it's, it, it was all about how like it's bad for occupation to end. Right. And it's like, it's like, it's so, it's so, you know, I, I shared Mateo's feelings that like, there is probably, you know, this, this withdrawal doesn't mean like occupation may re it may reassert itself and probably is being reasserted itself in very different ways. Right. Like, I think that's, I mean, we'll have to watch to see what happens, but I definitely think that's, you know, the U S doesn't just withdraw if it's not going to still maintain some kind of economic power in there. Right. But, but, you know, with the, with the overall discourse, I was, I was reminded, you know, at the time of, you know, Fanon in Wretched of the Earth, right? He has he has a number of passages where he talks about how how colonizers justify occupation by saying that if they were to leave, the colonies would return to the Middle Ages. And you know, as, as if as if colonialism or neocolonialism doesn't preserve and, and and actually promote this kind of backwardness. I feel like it would be remiss of me not to bring up climate change while discussing the failures of capitalism. As revolutionary communists, we're always fighting an uphill battle. How do you stay optimistic and vigilant while dealing with the outcomes of necrocapitalism, especially in the face of the latest official reports from the IPCC concerning climate change? Oh man, Jesus! I mean, this is this is a hard yeah, question. Impossible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the world the world was burning when we wrote this, and, and it continues to burn. <laughs> I mean, I'm, that's not a that's a sad laughter, not like. <laughs> Yeah, when I uh, when I read the when when I when I was confronted with this question, I realized that this was probably the hardest one. Um, but uh, so what what uh, yeah, like you know, you start looking at uh, you start looking at these international reports, and then you start wondering. Well, you don't wonder. It's like in stark presentation that there is not that much time left to maintain and sustain an imperialist life, an imperialist uh, lifestyle. And, um, you know, the pandemic, everybody seems to be very worn down by it. everything that we discussed in this book. So you ask yourself, okay, where, where do we stand? What, are, where, what does the future hold? Well, in our book, we, we 
always maintained an where whether it was challenging the capitalist imaginary, whether it was challenging the legal way to challenge the system and coming up with revolutionary alternatives. So when it comes to climate change, we need to understand that there are there are people, there are there are such things as water protectors. There are such yes. things as land protectors. And they are mm-hmm. out there. And they're out there and they're holding the line. And all of the things that we discussed in necrocapitalism about the viability of electoral electoral reform, about the the need for uh, extra legal alternatives, and putting it all into the context of the growth of capitalism, there is opportunity for optimism, and we have strategic confidence. You know, I think that's a, that's a Maoist term. We have strategic confidence that the masses make history. It's not the imperialists in the boardrooms that are going to make history. It's the masses that are going to make history. What it highlights to us, or at least from my point of view, is that if you're going to have a revolutionary program, if you're going to have a revolutionary platform, long gone are the days in which you you can ignore environmental impact of economics, and the effect that it's going to have on the people who are on the front lines right now defending water, defending land, defending uh, the forests, defending, fighting against corporate monopolies. And we need to heighten our understanding in how to look out for falsehood and demagogy because it's in vogue. Politicians like Joe Biden claim to be the environmental, the pro-science. They say they're where they're pro-science. At the same time, they it's business as usual. Just like we've seen in every other uh, every other uh, site or uh, lo- locus of social phenomena under uh, necrocapitalism. So the lessons that we've the the, the 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 things that we've written about are imminently applicable to the critique of environmental destruction under imperialism. Yeah, those are some of my thoughts. Yeah, I think, I think, I think, yeah, you summed it up quite well, Mateo. And I also like the point you said about the, about um, kind of like the certain, there's a, there's a certain heaviness in the book when we go back and look at it over everything. I mean, the book still has, it still has this optimism about like organizing, but I, I remember when we, um, when, um, I sent when we sent it off to to some of the um, the people that blurbed it, like Dylan Rodriguez and Angela, and, sorry Angeli Fatima Reza Kolb and, and Jasper Poor. I can't remember which ones of them said it, but they felt like when they they really enjoyed the book. They felt when they were rereading it, they felt like a, it reminded them of all the heaviness of <laughs> of the shit that was going on, right? <laughs> um, and <clears throat> and so yeah, I mean it, it, it's. This, this idea of, of fighting an uphill battle and you know I, I and i also appreciate mateo's comments about like the the, the water protectors and the land defenders and if you can add to that mm-hmm. like like those 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 forces those like revolutionary forces like that are that are leading people's wars in other countries that you know sh- show the glimmers and the germs of like a, a better society um and that's where we need to gain our optimism from but you know it's like like when thinking through this uphill battle it's like i feel like 
now at this age, you know, even though sometimes I gravitate, I gravitate to, towards the more pessimism because I, I, I'm, I'm getting older and I'm seeing like environmental collapse. And that's, you know, the, the stuff we talked about earlier about nihilism, it's always, it's, it's always easy to fall into that, right? Because, because yeah. of, of the things we pointed out, just how much shit capitalism and imperialism has done to the world, right? It, it, like not just to people, but to the world's own biosphere. Um, it's it just been so relentlessly murderous that it's like murdering the planet itself. It's, it, and, and yet, and yet people are just, that's just the way it is, or it's not happening. And it's, it's bizarre, right? I mean, we spent years going through, you know, oil, oil companies, like this, trying to discredit anyone talking about climate change, even though every single scientist agreed upon it. And now that they can't avoid the science, they're just trying to make it seem like it's a problem that individuals have to deal with. Right. Um, so, you know, in, the, in this way, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, there's, there's a part of me that is opposed to op overly optimistic proclamations. I, I really feel that there's a, there's a type of person, you know, kind of like a, a young communist or um, like a wholly online communist that just like will make these proclamations that communists will win all the time. Uh, you know, it, 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 in, without ever being involved in a movement or being involved with a small movement. And, and, and they use, use that kind of teleological long language that doesn't matter what we do. Communism is going to like just win no matter what. Um, but then, you know, the other side is, 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 is the, 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 the difficult, you know, the trap that is difficult to avoid and that I definitely want to avoid is that the overly pessimistic claims that there is no future, right? And I think we have to avoid both the, the easy optimism and the easy pessimism. And I don't know if it's an easy optimism, but maybe it's like some like uh, beer goggles optimism or something. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I, think, I, I think like I'm a realist, which means, you know, I, I, I from the, for, for a very long time, I've taken the, you know, that that, you know, the antinomy of socialism or barbarism very seriously. Like like we have we have to win or we are fucked. Right. But but, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful in this and, and, and I think fighting for the hope of a better world is, is necessary to overcome this capitalist imaginary and the notion that capitalism is the limit and people are fighting and, and we just have to do more of that fighting. It's not it's not communism will, will win just by itself, but we have to fight for it. Right. We have to fight for it or we, we get we get, you know, the, the collapse of everything. So I think largely I've, all, I've been drawn to that you know, old Gramsci quote, which is like, you know, pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. <laughs> so one level, I got that pessimism of the intellect. I know that the world is shit, but I have the optimism of like the willing it to be better, right? So we know intellectually that the world is going to hell, but we also know that revolutionaries can remake it for the better. And I think that's important. But yeah, the other thing, you know, I wanted to say too, is that, you know, it was brought up, um, it's quite the, the, the term necrocapitalism, right? Which, which we've used, and we haven't really, really touched on it. And, I, and you brought it up in, in this question, um, about, you know, the outcomes of necrocapitalism. And I, I want to note here that, you know, we use that term because of like the way that, you know, capitalism just wants to, to murder and kill everything, right? <laughs> including the world, right? Um, and so it, it was largely used to focus on this essential aspect of capitalism that has been with it since the beginning, you know, the, the murderous aspect, even murdering the ecosystem, um, you know, a system based on, on, on exploitation and oppression. But, but we weren't, you know, claiming a new mode of production or like a new phase. Uh, the whole point was to examine capitalism as it always had been. Um, and in the time, the, the, you know, it was happening in this time of pandemic when like, it seemed like pandemic was magnifying this always existing aspect in the centers of capitalism. Um, and, you know, because, you know, I, I don't, it's very clear from this book that the capitalism can't manage pandemic humanely, 
at all, right? Um, and I just I just wanted to point that out because there's this tendency amongst kind of a uh, an academic and dilettante left to, to make up new phases or new modes of production. Without, but they do this all the time, but they don't really read the classics. And it's like all the stuff they say, I'm like, you know, you go back to Marx and Engels and that shit you're saying about capitalism, that's that's in capital, right? That's in all this other stuff they've done, right? Um, so yeah, it's just, we made this point in, in the prologue of the book too. And it was also, just a side point, it was, it was funny because like several months into the project, someone wrote an article for Al Jazeera and they used the term necrocapitalism <laughs> after we've been using it. And they, and they did it in the way that we warned against. They claimed there was like a new phase. It was distinct from classical capitalism. Um, and it was just, it was bizarre. They would say that because like, when has capitalism not been necrotic, right? All right. Well, that wraps up the questions I had for you. I really appreciate you taking the time. If you'd like to let the listeners know where they can follow your work and where they can pick up a copy of on necrocapitalism. Yeah, um, so uh, you can purchase Necrocapitalism at uh, leftwingbooks.net. I just I just typed, it's .net, right? I just typed, I just typed left wing, left wing. Yeah. leftwingbooks.net, yeah. But it's leftwingbooks.net, and all you got to do uh, is search, just put on Necrocapitalism, and it will, it will pop up. And, uh, and in terms of my work, Mateo, you can find me on Twitter under the handle Bourgeoisophy and on the internet. Just put in Bourgeois Philosophy and uh, my website will pop up. Yeah, I mean, and you can find me on um, MLM Mayhem, mufawadpaul.blogspot.com. <laughs> um, and the book, yes, yeah, as, as Mateo said, uh, the, the publisher, Chris Blebedev, their, their online bookstore is leftwingbooks.net. Um, it's, I mean, it's obviously available if you can't get it through the, the shitty Bezos things, but obviously try to avoid, uh, you know, collaborating with Amazon as much as possible. Uh, it, it's it, because, you know, the press, Chris Blubbett is putting it out. I mean, if you have radical like bookstores in your neighborhood that you want to support, like independent bookstores that do like good, good work with the community, you can order it in from, from them as well. I mean, they, they, you know, they have their own stock. It's not print on demand so they can distribute to other bookstores. And I, I have a feeling it's like, because Chris Blebedev tends to share distribution with AK press that it's probably going to be distributed more easily for people in the U S through AK press at, at some point, like other Chris Blebedev books are. All right. So that wraps up my interview with JMP and Mateo. If you want to support my work, you can do so at manifestingpodcast.com. There's a little donate button there. And I can't recommend enough picking up a hard copy of On Necrocapitalism. Again, support Chris Lebedev, pick up a copy of the book. Well worth your time and money. All right. Until next time, Red Salute.